We're just listening to the house of mercy, waiting for the waters to stir. Today, everyone is an auto-exploiting laborer in his or her own enterprise. People are now master and slave in one. Even class struggle has transformed into an inner struggle against oneself. And, that and are is, you going to say who read yeah, that? Yeah, that's uh, Byung Chul Han. A German guy, right? Yeah, he's a German guy. I know at first I thought he was Chinese, but... Uh, He's German, philosopher. You know, what's funny is that Russ and I just went through recording this once and uh, realized that it wasn't recording, so here we are again. Yeah, and it was um, kind of funny because it's uh, actually Wednesday morning. It's not uh, not Sunday evening, afternoon when we usually record. And I was just remarking how much more on the ball I seem in the morning. Yeah. And... Uh, it did seem like it was there was magic. You should have heard it. It was good, but I did not put a uh, I did not put a uh, disc in the recorder. So, but it is in there now, right? Let me check. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, glad you're here listening to the House of Mercy podcast. Um, yeah. Uh, now I have no. Yeah. Words. No, I know. <laughs> Well, one thing we were gonna uh, we were going to talk about was the the pledge drive. Yeah, for sure. You know, even through these crazy times, House of Mercy has been trying to deliver the radical mercy, radical inclusion, radical gratitude. Um, we have a hard time asking for money, but this community is so important, and let's keep it going. Yeah, I think that now. That uh, House of Mercy's just out of House of Merciness, the pursuit of this radical mercy and gratitude and inclusion is uh, is needed now uh, more than ever. And uh, I know, no, I need it. Oh, absolutely. And just what we do, we I mean, we continue to do. Did you say this already? Because or did you say the last time that we are even in these COVID times and these troubled times? We are continuing to, you know make art together with all the murals up on the building. It's fantastic in the mosaic and entryway. And we're making um, a lot of people um, writing beautiful stuff that we're putting out there and uh, making good music, music. Make yeah. good music. We're continuing to do the stuff that House of Mercy does and continue to even to, you know, uh, write sermons that are, are thoughtful and uh, full of questions. You know, that's the thing. House of Mercy, we harken back to a, uh, an earlier time um, when one maybe cast a little bit of a, a cynical eye, but uh, what really was very came with a cultural critique. Or, I mean, nowadays it seems like there's not really that kind of questioning. It's just like two different sides, black and white, screaming at each other. And we like to look for that tertium quid, that third way, where we're not on this side or on that side. I mean, of course, hopefully we all vote on the one side. But um, we do. We still are culturally critical, and it's it. And we're largely confessional, right? Um, yeah, you, you can't like, point a finger. Always, with, yeah. always recognizing that nothing's really black and white. Right. 
And whatever charge we want to make about someone else, we must first start with ourselves. Uh, but anyway, that's so this is House of Mercy. We're so happy that people believe in this community and continue to support it through uh, through these hard times. I know that um, a lot of you, I know some of you have, have lost your jobs or looking for different positions, Been uh, your hours have been cut or your salaries have been cut. And I know here at House of Mercy last August, we cut our salaries by uh, 25% and uh, cut the amount of rent that we give uh, to the building uh, by 50%. So we're making cutbacks here too. But we want to keep this thing going and we appreciate you. You know, we all have to sort of support the institutions and the communities that really matter to us now. So um, when everybody can come out of their house and come back together, they will still exist, you know, like with all the businesses. I know at our house we have this thing we call it the COVID tip, you know, right? Uh, if you when you get your food delivered or whatever, you, you double the tip or you make sure people take care of each other and take care of the places you want to have around, you know, not disappear. Right. So if you if you can pledge... If you're in a financial uh, position to do so, or if you can even increase your pledge, that would be great. If you can't pledge, we totally understand. But um, you, you received uh, the, the pledge letter in the newsletter. If you don't get the newsletter, you can sign up for that at housemercy.org. And, uh, yeah, easy to pledge. There's also a survey attached. We'd love to hear your thoughts on how we can continue to be a community in pandemic times. That's right. So on that uh, letter, there's a, a link uh, to pledge or give a one-time gift or increase your pledge and to fill out that survey. Thank you for all that you do we to keep you. the music going. Yeah. We miss you. This is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Please join me in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy. You have found us before. We pray that you will find us again. And give us the mercy we can't come up with on our own. Something beyond ourselves. A mercy that will move us and them to desire love and justice and grace for all peoples. Help us hear your call in the midst of the roar of loathing hostility, and mercilessness. We need you now, as ever. Amen. Please join with us in singing House of Mercy hymn number 133, Hard Times Come Again No More. Let us pause in life's pleasures, count its many tears, while we all sup sorrow with the poor. There's a song that will linger forever in our ears. Oh, hard times come again no more. Tis a song sigh of the weary. Hard times, hard times come again no more. Many
we seek birth and beauty, music light and gay. There are frail forms fainting at the door. Though their voices are silent, their pleading looks will say, Oh, hard times come again no more. Tis the song, the sigh of the weary. Hard times, hard times come again no more. Many days you have lingered around my cabin door. Join me in the prayers of community. I'll end each prayer petition with God in your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, the world has had a hard year. It isn't the first one, obviously, but we are weary nonetheless, all across the planet, weary of disasters. We'll just go ahead and say straight out that it would be wonderful to have a break from them. We pray that things can get better, that this is possible, that we might emerge from this with more passionate commitments to a better healthcare system, a reduction of carbon emissions, the common good. We pray that we could actually make progress toward ending racism and we can do something to change the algorithms that lead us to live in separate realities, though our interrelatedness could not be clearer. We pray that that vaccine may be distributed effectively and justly. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, we pray for this country we live in, that our government will be functional again, that whatever needs to be in place for a peaceful transition of power will be in place. We pray that there will be no more bloodshed. We pray that those putting out a call to arms will not be successful. I'm not sure what you can do this first month of 2021, gracious God, but we pray that love and justice and mercy and kindness and compassion will prevail. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, this pandemic has hurt us physically, mentally, and spiritually. It has put strains on our relationships. We pray for those who have suffered the most, for comfort, and for the hope of healing. We pray for all of us to be heartened by possibility, more light, some peace. We need you now as ever. God, in your mercy. 
Give us a sense of your presence, a glimpse of mercy as we pause for silence. Though we can't always see or believe or hope, lead us to love and mercy. Amen. The reading for tonight is from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. The word of the Lord. A mantle, M-A-N-T-E-L, is the shelf thingy on a fireplace. A mantle, M-A-N-T-L-E, is a cloak. One you put things on, and the other is a thing you put on. But a mantle, E-L, is more than just a garment or cloak. A mantle is a symbol, a symbol of a mission, a way, a way which one is called to follow, sometimes divinely. It is a way one must live out, a core mission taken on from one character or person to another, from one's father or mother or mentor. A mantle is taken up. Taking up the mantle in the online list of comic book tropes is to be distinguished from taking up the sword. Taking up the sword is different in it that it implies the protagonist had time to actually say something along the lines of, I'm dying, please take my MacGuffin to his successor. It is an example that came on the website. I don't know what 
his MacGuffin is. Um, uh, but whereas taking up a mantle, the character has to take the initiative or be shown what it is or shown what they have to do, but ultimately it is something they have to decide to take up themselves. So taking up the mantle, surprisingly, did not originate with comic books, but um, comes from a much more colorful collection of books, the Bible. And what a mantle we have here. A mantle we have here, it's a powerful mantle. The whole mantle thing starts out with Elijah. It's Elijah's mantle, the cloak of Elijah. Elijah is, is like a major prophet of Yahweh who fights against the prophets of ba- Baal, 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 and Baal's priestesses, and generally everything Baalish, or would it be Ballsy? Wait, I'm not saying that right. Um, anyway, he had a mantle, a cloak. Um, now, this is the first time we encounter Elijah's mantle. And it's not being taken up, it's actually being put on or placed. You can place a mantle as well as take up a mantle. And it's placed on the shoulders of Elisha, uh, Elijah's um, chosen, I guess, companion and eventual replacement. So Elisha is plowing, he's out in the fields on his family farm, and he's got 12 yoke of oxen, and he's driving one of them, and Elisha just kind of comes up and throws the cloak, the mantle, on Elisha. And immediately Elisha just like jumps off his oxen and heads out after Elijah. But then he just has a pause and says, wait just one minute, let me just go back and kiss my mom and dad goodbye, and then I'll come back to you. So Elijah says, sure, go. So Elisha runs back, takes all his oxen, slaughters them all, smashes up all his plowing equipment, starts a fire, cooks all the oxen, feeds everybody he can, and then leaves to follow and become the servant Elisha. That is a powerful mantle. Makes people crazy. So evidently, time goes on, and evidently um, Elisha gives Elijah back his mantle, because many years later, after the cloaked prophet and his sidekick have had many adventures, one day they walk to the River Jordan, and Elijah takes off his mantle, his cloak, and he rolls it up, and he strikes the river with it, and the river parts, and Elijah and Elisha cross over to the other side. Now, when they get there, there's a crazy whirlwind. A giant flaming chariot comes down, sweeps up Elijah, and takes him off to the whirlwind, never to be seen again. But... Floating down to the ground is his mantle. It falls off. And guess what? Elisha takes up his mantle. And he rolls it up like his mentor did. And he strikes the River Jordan. And, um, well, let me just do it in the King James. It's a little bit better. He took the mantle of Elisha that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elijah walked on. It's a little bit more dramatic. It is a little comic booky, I think. Um, and thusly, Elisha takes on the calling of Elijah, not just his clothes, but his mission. And that is the origin of the term and its meaning to take up one's mantle. So, this story we have for tonight, it's, 
It's not fair. I mean, the one thing people always think about the story is they always leave it going like, what? It's not fair. I mean, it doesn't seem fair to anyone in the, in the whole story. Not the one I just told, but the one about Cain and Abel and God and the, you know, killing and the, it just doesn't make anybody look good. It does a disservice to everybody involved. It does not make God look good at all. I mean, we're just four chapters into the Bible, right? And we're not completely what, sure what kind of God we have so far. And after the whole chapter three where they, God throws Adam and Eve out of the garden and then this part right here, I'm guessing the kind of God that we might be getting might be, I don't know, moody and capricious might be getting some votes, I think. I mean, this is God. If you're Cain, too, I mean, you can surely understand why he's a little bit upset. He's a little bit upset here. Um, but however upset you are, to commit the first murder in existence, it just looks bad. And especially if it's your brother, and especially given that there are only like four people at that point, he wipes out like a quarter of the population. It just it doesn't look good for him. And, you know, I guess we're so able. I mean, what did he do? Nothing. I mean, he herded some sheep and then he dies. There's so much in this story, and it operates on so many different levels. It's on both conscious levels and unconscious levels. I mean, in some ways it seems like to reveal its truth that it's better maybe just to tell the story or just hear the story as much as it would be to like benefit from examining and explaining it all. Like there are some stories that maybe seem so, I don't know, maybe a rational explanation is not necessarily the best way of understanding it. Maybe there's another way of processing these ancient enigmas and presumptions. There's so much here. Creation followed by expulsion, shortly after that, the first murder of a brother. Something about these things, we can like feel that there's some truth in there, but we can't quite explain what it is or why. Well, okay, look at this. Adam and Eve, they're kicked out of the garden, but then right after that, beginning four, um, Adam and Eve, um, Adam knew his wife, intimately, and they conceived and bore Cain. And she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It has been created. When she says that, I've, na- I've, this man- I've had a child named Cain, He's a- she's then explaining what Cain means when she says, a gift from the Lord. I've gotten him from the Lord. That's what Cain means, a gift from the Lord. And again, he bore his bro- um, she bore his brother Abel. Then no explanation of what Abel even means, just moves right on, which is understandable because Cain is the firstborn child, the important one, right? And Abel, nothing. As a matter of fact, um, his main name means nothing. No, it's not that it doesn't mean anything. It means nothing, nothingness. Abel means nothingness, vapor. Like, so clearly he's not at all important. So Cain assuming that he's the firstborn, that he is the gift from God. He's not nothing. He's, not, he's more than something even. He's the gift from God. And he is the one to take up the mantle of his father. 
His father, who started out taking care of the animals, that was the first thing God did was give Adam that job, taking care of the animals, right, naming them. And then after the whole snake debacle and everything, um, he took that job away from him. And God said, no, you will go till the soil now by the sweat of your brow. And that firstborn son takes up the punishment and the mantle of his father, and he plows those fields. He, by the sweat of his brow, he plows those fields and he harvests those fields. He does what his father was told to do. He's a good son. Abel, he decides to go back to the animal thing just on his own. He tends sheep. He goes and he says, you're not supposed to be doing that. Um, but he just decides, I guess, on his own that he's going to work, go work back with the animals again, even though God said, uh, no, don't do that anymore. And so, I don't know what, Cain probably feels bad for Abel, you know? So it's, he, it's harvest time, it's worship time. He um, harvests his fields and he brings the best fruit before the Lord. And Abel kills some sheep, as fat as sheep, and brings them before the Lord. And the Lord is just like, what is this? You know? And he just takes that, that meat, and it, it says, like, what in the um, translation, that he regarded it? I think he more than regarded it. He seemed to really like it a lot. Um, and it's just not fair. You can just feel that all through the story with Cain. It's just like, it's just not fair. He did what he was supposed to do. He's the firstborn. He is the gift from God. And the Lord prefers nothing to him. The Lord chooses nothing above him. It's really quite confusing. The Lord sees that this nothingness, this vapor, or another translation is like one that can't even live, um, is disobeying what he ordered, yet he seems to be intrigued by him and pleased by him when he disobeyed this law that he set out for him. And the one that did what he was told, he just sent him back and said, ah, you know, I prefer this. And when Cain objects, the Lord pretty much says, uh, you know, look, you could, if you would do, you, you have the choice. You can do it. You're able to, to decide what's right. If you want, if you wanted to please me, you could. So he's very mad. He goes off, you know, this is the famous party, lures his brother. And I don't think Abel speaks the entire time in this whole thing, kills him. And then this is where the Lord comes and says, you know, where's your brother? This is like when he comes up on Adam and says, um, you know, where are you? As if God doesn't know. This is where we get this kind of God that we're not quite sure where, how he's going to end up to be. Because so far he's been a little bit manipulative. He's been a little bit of a trickster. The creation thing was great. But then everything after that so far, it's a little bit you don't know quite where you stand with this God. As a matter of fact, who made worship a competition? You know, this is a family worshiping together. They're all bringing their sacrifices. God is the one that made it a competition. Why is that? This family would have been probably perfectly happy without God around. God is the one that is always causing the problems. 
And if you keep reading this book, it gets worse, I'm telling you. (laughs) What is this all about? What is this all about when we are given, we are handed down this tradition, this faith tradition? We're called to take up the mantle of our forefathers and mothers from this faith tradition, to take up these core beliefs, these essential understandings, this orthodoxy, if you will, the orthodoxy of the ones who've gone before us. But what if the mission or the essential understanding, the orthodoxy, is a dismantling orthodoxy, a deconstructing construction of that which we have inherited, the very thing that we are passed down, that God created and bestowed upon his creation, resists being taken up, crumbles in our hands, and then we're left to either pretend or invent or what, give up? This is God's table and all are welcome. On the night he was handed over to death, Jesus took bread and gave thanks for it and broke it and gave it to his disciples to eat, saying, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this and remember me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and gave the cup for all to drink saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and shed for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this and remember me. Future House of Mercy hymn, Get Right Church by the Staple Singers. church and let's go home. Get right church and let's go home. Get right church. Get right church. Get right church and let's go home. I'm going home on the morning train. I'm going home Too late. 
love of God be more real to you this week than the morass of not love. May the grace of Christ surround you with the possibilities of mercy. And may the peace of the Spirit go with you and be with you now. Amen.